Okay, so first of all, what do monkeys have to do with the Spanish-American War? I want to know this. He was clearly saying San Juan monkey, right? As in San Juan Hill, right? Um, I'm not sure. Right, huh, odd. Well, that had no relevance whatsoever. Let's get on with the show. There we go. Okay, the... Now, for, for the listeners explaining the echo, we weren't actually harmonizing there for a second. No, we that weren't. It was a default in the speakers, uh, I think. Or, or I'm just an idiot, either way. But yeah, so, so we, we did establish that monkeys do have nothing to do with the Spanish-American War, because I, I am confused about that a little bit. <laughs> but that was a very interesting song. And speaking of songs, we are going to start off the arts report today with music. Oh, yes. Shall we carry on with that? <laughs> So for any of you guys wondering what the heck you guys are listening to, what show is the, what show is on on CITR radio right now? We are the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM and today is February the 1st. It is 5:04 p.m. and my name is Christine Kim and I'm Jake Clark. We are going to be your hosts for this afternoon. We are broadcasting to you live from the University of British Columbia Vancouver campus from unceded Musqueam territory. And on today's show, what we've got lined up are two live interviews, one with the artistic director of Early Music Vancouver and the other with two students from the UBC Faculty of Medicine, as well as a review of As I Lay Dying by our very own Jake Clark. You see, I thought you were asking me if As I Lay Dying was a musical. Which, admittedly, that that's an idea right there, you know, like, as I lay die in the musical. Like, you, I, you can make it like a, a bluegrass musical, like, oh, well, I is still dead, and we're going down the road, now the mule done Let's drive. not no. go down that road. <laughs> It'd be like the old Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack, which is about the evils of humanity. Yeah, yeah, this, this is the next review. So before we get like jump straight into the interviews as well as the review, um, like I said, I want to start off the show with a song. I'm going to be giving a quick shout out for an up and coming artist by the name of Daniel Tortolito. He's a performer and songwriter based out of Bro- Brooklyn, New York, but he's coming to Vancouver to perform at Cafe de Soleil on March the 24th. So that's still a ways away, but uh, this is a quick promo for him. I'm going to be playing one of his songs uh, straight from his sound cloud and it's called spare time so if you like what you hear there's going to be more details to follow after the song It's not a great disaster if I can't 
was Spare Time by Daniel Tortolito. Yeah, his vocals remind me a little bit of Billy Bragg. Like, like I, I, I don't know, not a whole lack of a lot, but a little bit. Like, yeah. I guess, yeah. So yeah, if, we if... don't really, We really only have Ed Sheeran for Billy Bragg right now, so. Yeah. Only Ed Sheeran? Well, th- no, I mean this guy, obviously, but I'm saying, like, in general. It's it, it's it's a weird substitution, you know. Yeah. One of those ones comparisons I just made that makes me glad we don't have a comment section. Do we have? A we comment should section? now have a comment section, but no, no, no. We have a comment section. Go um, great. <laughs> so that was spare time by Daniel Tortolito. If you like what you heard, you can and want to hear the rest of the song. Thirty seconds. Um, thirty seconds. The rest of his song. Um, you can find out more at his official website, which is www.daniel d a n i e l Tortolito, T-O-R-T-O-L-E-D-O dot com. First time you mentioned his name, I thought he was Vin Diesel's character from Fast and the Furious, but that's Dominic Toretto. That's, uh, no. No. <laughs> you and your comparisons today. <laughs> so, s- gun- going to be joining us very soon on the line, uh, on the phone line, is Matthew White, the artistic director of Early Music Vancouver. He is going to be speaking uh, with the Arts Report today to talk about the upcoming performance this Saturday at the Vancouver Playhouse of Les Mozart, Mozart Noir. Um, so we're very excited to uh, be talking to him today about uh, the production, and this production is put on, again, by Early Music Vancouver. Uh, it will be performed by the Pacific Baroque Orchestra. Huh. And this, this is uh, basic. Is it, I, I'm really wondering, and like we could ask him this in the interview, is this going to be a, a sort of reworking of Amadeus as per you know the film, or is this the story of Mozart just retold differently? Uh, so the way that I understand it is that one of the uh, – w- oh, and looks like Matthew is here to answer that question. He can answer that, that question. question. Fantastic. Let's see. Hello, Matthew. Hello? Hello? Mr. White? Looks like – The other reservoir dogs are in trouble. Uh, uh, technical difficulties. Because it's an interesting thing, because you know Amadeus really is a very, a very good movie. It's one of those ones that like gets away with being three hours long, you know. Like it's, it's just really solid in that regard. And I'd be really wondering to see like how that story's told in a different medium, because it's 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 interesting. Like this, because so would this be an opera? I'm just trying to get my my head around it. Mm-hmm. And I think the questions that we had were. Um, going to be answered because uh, with us on the line now is Matthew White. Hi there. Howdy. Perfect. Great to have you with us joining us live on the show today. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you. So my name is Christine and my co-host Jake Clark already has questions about Les Mozart Noir, Noir which is going to be happening at the Vancouver Playhouse this upcoming Saturday February the 4th at 8 p.m. So uh, my my first question right off the bat is, uh, is this based off the film Amadeus, or is, does this have more to do just with a musical biography of Shakespeare himself? Of the, Mozart! Sorry, a musical biography of Shakespeare. We've got a, that's a separate one altogether. <laughs> Indeed. Okay, so um, in short, this is um, uh, a concert, first and foremost, but we're preceding it with a, a documentary film screening at 6.30 uh, about the life of one of one of the three, uh, actually one of the four composers on the program, 
Um, and and the, the the documentaries on the life of, of the, the Chevalier de Saint Georges, who was a um, he's not a very well known figure in history, and that's not fair. And that's really one of the reasons why we're we're putting on the concert. He was a a black violinist who was the son of a slave owner in Guadeloupe, um, and of a uh, of a slave who was working on the plantation. He was brought back to Paris, um, where his father. Um, educated him uh, in the violin and also in fencing. And not only did he become one of the, the, the greatest violinists of 18th century France, but he also uh, became the greatest fencer in, in, in France at the same time. So you can imagine this is a really um, extremely accomplished uh, person. Uh, so this concert is just a, um, an effort to redress him being submerged beneath the waves of history, as it were. And uh, it's, a, it's a great opportunity to hear some music that some people will never have heard and to hear it in the context of some of the other great composers of, the, of exactly the same period in late 18th century uh, Europe. So Mozart, Haydn, and also there's Leclerc. There's a, a big um, uh, violin concerto by uh, the Mozart Noir's teacher. And mm. when you say that it was unfair that Chevalier de Saint-Georges uh, was is not as well known as, you know, his counterparts of the same period. Um, do you say that because um, of the fact of his skin color, that because he was black, he didn't get as much um, attention, regardless, you know, of how great his abilities were? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we can't underestimate the extent to which uh, 18th century French was a um, a different civilization, and it was, it was a, clearly a very not just a racist civilization, but a, but a classist civilization. It was, um, this is pre French revolution, France. And, uh, this was the music of the aristocracy. Um, and, uh, a black musician coming to, to, uh, to play this music and not just play it well, but to be the best at it is something that would have challenged all of their accepted realities. Right. right? So they, they, um, and in fact, you know, he was, um, he was so good that the people who could recognize how good he was suggested that he should take one of the, the most important musical positions in France at the time, which was head of the, 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 the Paris opera. Um, but oh. he sadly didn't get the job because three of the head divas in the company at the time sent a letter to the king saying, we will never submit to the, um, the, the, um, the will of a, uh. of a mulatto. Hmm. Uh. Yeah, but that's just the way it was, and 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 uh, it's it's um, it's obviously sad, and um, and but you know it's not it's not uh, surprising somehow, you know. No, it's not. It's, it's... But the music is wonderful, and so so in the the thing is that basically we just decided that it would be a, a fun concert to put on, uh, not just because the story is an interesting one. I mean, this is an extraordinary musical talent from the 18th century who's a black person, which is you know something that everybody should know about because um, it's extraordinary. But two, because the music is, it doesn't need any narrative to be interesting. You right. see what I'm saying? It doesn't, we, we don't really need to put a concert of, of, of symphonies by St. George on just because it makes a good story and because he was a black man. The fact is it's fabulously great music. And, and he changed the, the, the possibilities for playing the violin in, in, the, in the 18th century. He pushed the technical boundaries of the, of the instrument uh, further than anybody else had at that point. What were some of those so he, innovations? Well, he just, for instance, he played way, way much higher on the fingerboard than most violinists uh, had gone before. Hmm. Um, and and some some of the 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 the, um, the stuff that he asks the 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 um, the left hand to do are just it's just technically a lot more 
challenging than than music you'd seen before that. And that's that's what all my violinist friends tell me anyway. They all say, yeah, no, he's he was pushing the envelope in terms of what was technically possible at the time. And, and you yourself, how how did you find out about uh, Chevalier's music? Well, strangely, I mean, I, I used to be a singer, um, and I sang uh, with orchestras and, and choirs pretty much all over the world. And, and um, one of the orchestras that I, I did a lot of work with was a Canadian orchestra called Tafel Music Baroque Orchestra, who are based out of Toronto. And um, I was there singing um, and noticed one day that they had a, a DVD for sale of, of a documentary that they had recently done. And it was a documentary on the life of the Chevalier saint Georges, where they they um, tell a bit of his story and play a bunch of his music and do interviews with uh, contemporary uh, black classical music artists um, to, to sort of you know give their perspective. And I just thought it was a charming uh, story. And I also thought that the music was you know ridiculously beautiful for somebody uh, you know that I'd never heard of. <laughs> you just thought like. What? Why haven't I heard of that? Because that's that's uh, that's really superbly beautiful music, um, and that's so that's when I first heard about him. And uh, I know that our music director Alexander Weimann has always loved his his work, has always loved the, the, his compositions. And Monica Huggett, who's the guest soloist for this concert, um, is one of the world's great Baroque violinists, and uh, she says exactly the same thing. She says this is music of the highest highest standard and it's really fun and challenging to play so in terms of technical mastery would you where would you put him among um, the comparators that you've set him uh, like Haydn and Mozart yeah I mean I, I think that's a hard hard thing for me to say exactly because you know Haydn and Mozart are just absolutely undisputed masters but what I would say is that um, you know when you hear a symphony by St. Georges next to them um, it doesn't pale in comparison. It's it's absolutely uh, comparable, um, and uh, and interesting, and and slightly different and idiomatic um, of the period, while still pushing boundaries. So it's it's um, yeah, it's just it's it's wonderful context for the late 18th century. It's really it's fun to hear it, and uh, it's technically uh, sound, more than sound, inspiring. Yeah. And this. Uh, performance is in celebration of Black History Month, um, and I was wondering if you had any comments about uh, about the importance of this month in, in in general, and how you think that early music Vancouver will be supporting uh, the different narratives of this month uh, through this performance. Well, I mean, I just you know I think it's a pretty straightforward answer that the arts belong to everybody, you know, and um, I think it's important. Um, to remind people uh, that, uh, you know, skin color is one thing um, and uh, it's it's only a part of who we are and, and uh, we should all um, be aware that there's, that there's a lot of culture out there that we're not aware of and that's worth hearing. Um, and I think in this case, bringing the, the, the work of a, of a, of a genius uh, who... Uh, was a black man in the 18th century is 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 only good. It's just another um, demonstration of the fact that, uh, um, yeah, that the arts belong to to all of us. That's an admirable sentiment, certainly is. And uh, now you mentioned that he's a genius who's also a black man in the 18th century, and that's probably like when you think of this is beautiful music. Why did I not hear him? Probably because he was a black man in the 1800s. Like it was not a certainly not a good time. Uh, in that regard, 
does the show thro- throw any focus on that at all uh, on the situation that he might have faced uh, outside of his music? Well, the documentary that we're pre-screening b- before, I mean, that we're uh, screening before the show tells, tells that story in very vivid detail, in fact, you know, um, and, uh, and it's a great story. His father obviously had enormous affection mm-hmm. for his son. Um, and, uh, you know, slavery was where they were living in Guadalupe and he knew that living in Guadalupe, his son would, would be stuck a slave, you know, and in 18th century France, uh, slavery had just been abolished. So he knew that by bringing his son back, he, he at least would not be bringing his son back. He would be able to raise his son in a, in a, in a, uh, in a free environment. But, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of emotional aspects to the story. And one of them is the fact that, you know, as a, as a black man, he was never going to be able to marry into the aristocracy, even though he was a, um, he was living in that world, right? He was never going to be able to marry a white woman, mm-hmm. even though those were all the women that he was coming in contact with. So, you know, th- there are stories of him, you know, apparently having been a really uh, renowned lover and, 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 and that the women loved him. I, I was going to say, uh, he sounds like, uh, he does sound like a, a, a sort of a swashbuckler hero, like Kant's master violinist, champion fencer, like if you, excellent lover kind of follows there, like it's, it's uh, he, he sounds like a really dashing and interesting character. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, he obviously must have been attractive to women in, in that he was, he was uh, enormously talented, you know. So, uh, but, but there all, there always must have been that realization that, um, that he was never going to be allowed to, um, live in aristocratic circles, uh, comfortably. He was never going to be able to have, uh, you know, a, a normal relationship, long-term relationship that was not going to be a reality for him. And that, that must've been really difficult. Right. And. I do think it, it it is really cool that um, it's not just the music that is the highlight of the of the evening, um, but also that documentary that you mentioned, uh, explaining a little bit more about Chevrolet's life um, beyond the music. Um, do you mind giving us the details uh, of ticketing for Les Mozart Noir? Um, any of our students here on campus that is interested in. Uh, coming to see the show, um, given what you've said, uh, how can people find out more? Well, uh, first of all, I mean, you know, you, they can just go to www.earlymusic.bc.ca. Um, but uh, if they want to, they can also just show up uh, the night of the concert. It looks like they're, they're, the ticket sales are going very well, but there will be a few extras. So um, we have student rush tickets, which are just $10. You can just go go to the door, and for $10, you can get a, a really good seat. Mm-hmm. Um, and $10, you know, if I can just remind the students out there, that's a lot less than you pay to go to the movies nowadays. And, and instead, you're going to be Definitely. able to get to see a movie and uh, a world-class performance uh, with, a, with a period instrument orchestra for 10 bucks, which is a pretty good deal. And uh, when is this event? Where and when? Uh, the concert is uh, this Saturday night, February 4th. The, the screening starts at 6.30, and the uh, performance starts at 8 o'clock. So there's enough time for a coffee or a drink in between. And we're actually, and a, yeah, sorry, go ahead. And, and, the, and it's, it's happening at the Vancouver Playhouse, which is uh, right downtown. Oh, good venue. And we're actually going to be doing a ticket giveaway for uh, this show. Um, so before we let you go, Matthew, uh, can you give just any final words um, about this performance of why people, about why students in particular should come see uh, the performance? Um, and... Yeah, I mean, just um, maybe a little bit of a, a, a promotion of, of why why this is something, a good way to spend somebody's, a student's Saturday evening. 
Well, I mean, if you're interested in learning something new, there's a lot of new things to be learned and and uh, new sounds to be heard. So um, I think for anybody who's curious about about um, music that they don't know, uh, played by really some of the, the 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 greatest instrumentalists that we have on the West Coast playing period instruments, uh, they can't go wrong. It's uh, it's a great story about a really important musical figure that they may not have heard of, and then they get a chance to hear some of his music played. Um, right in front of their their faces uh, and all for the for less than the price of a movie so um i'd Perfect. say it's it's your moral obligation <laughs> go and learn something new and something it, exciting it's always a pleasure to have you on the show um matthew especially as the artistic director of, of early music vancouver the the kind of performances that you guys do it's always a pleasure to be able to talk about it well, I'm glad to hear that, and I, I hope uh, this, some of the students uh, on campus decide to come out and take advantage of a, of a really good deal and hear some beautiful music. Great. Well, thank you again, and we look forward to uh, we look forward to the performance that evening. Cheers. Okay. Cheers. Thank you very much. That was Matthew White, the Artistic Director of Early Music Vancouver. The Arts Report is going to take a quick break, but we will be back with our next live interview with the students of the UBC Faculty of Medicine to talk about MedPlay. Boogaloo. Boost your resume by studying abroad and get that dream job. Don't miss the Graduate School Fair at The Nest, UBC, on Wednesday, March 1st or the Study and Go Abroad Fair on Thursday, March 2nd at the Vancouver Convention Center. Admission is free. Come early to catch our feature seminar on scholarships. For more info, visit our website at www.studyandgoabroad.com. Lincoln Alexander was a black Canadian who achieved much in politics. The child of Jamaican immigrants, he served in the Royal Canadian Air Force during World War II. He graduated from the Osgoode Hall Law School in 1953 and practiced at a number of firms for more than a decade. In 1968, he ran in Canada's federal election in the Hamilton West Electoral District. He won and became Canada's first black member of parliament. He served four consecutive terms before stepping down in 1980. In 1985, he was appointed Lieutenant Governor of Ontario, becoming the first black Canadian to hold a vice-regal position. Alexander passed away on October 19, 2012. In December 2013, Lincoln Alexander Day was made a law in Ontario and is held on January 21st. His wife, Marnie Beale Alexander, is currently working to make it a national holiday for Canada. This has been a Black History Month PSA brought to you by CITR. Fate. Sex. God. Everyone has a secret. In a series of tantalizing vignettes, over a hundred characters search for love and information. They discover themselves and each other through tango, torture, and karaoke. UBC Theatre and Film presents Love and Information. Written by influential and award-winning playwright Carol Churchill. And directed by MFA candidate Lauren Taylor. For tickets, visit theaterfilm.ubc.ca. There was no karaoke in that show. Did, 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 like, False advertising. There was no karaoke in that show. You're right. The but cake was alive. <laughs> so, welcome back to the Arts Report. With me now is Nick and Soma from the UBC Faculty of Me- Medicine to talk about MedPlay. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah. How are you guys doing today? 
pretty good. Yeah, I'm doing really good. We're opening tomorrow, and uh, I don't know. I'm very excited about it. My palms are sweating slightly. <laughs> so, what is MedPlay? So it's a it's a years long tradition of um, medical students at UBC putting on a play and uh, donating the proceeds to charity. And what Ooh. charity have you guys decided to pick this year? This year it's Hope Air, and it fits thematically well with our play, which is Boeing Boeing involving <laughs> planes. Um, Hope Air provides free transport for people who are living in far flung or rural communities in order to get them to healthcare centers. Because in Canada, healthcare is free, but you got to get there first, right? And is it always a different charity each year? I think uh, I think this is the second year we've uh, donated our proceeds to Hope Air, but I think uh, it is a, yeah reevaluated on a year to year basis. Gotcha. And tell me about the play Boeing Boeing. Okay, so it's a 1960s British sex farce. Because of course it is. <laughs> Which is the the genre of the play, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So it centers around this dude called Bernard, played by our own Devin <laughs> Mitchell, and he has three fiancés. They're all air hostesses, and they travel around the world, and they don't know about each other. And so I don't know if any of the listeners right now are brown or, or Indian, but there's a Bollywood movie called Gar Masala with the exact same plot line. <laughs> That's in Down With Love, too. Okay, sure. E- Ewan McGregor is a playboy character who has, like, uh, three stewardess girlfriends who are like french swedish and english i think yeah no here it's uh italian (laughs) american and uh german German, yeah yeah sweet is it usually hard to find uh to get participation um for med students i'm sure you guys are very busy with studies and, and exams is it pretty hard to get people involved in this well uh uh well we're busy but um it seemed like there were a lot of people out there for additions and um well, they've, they've pulled together a show for, for several years, so they seem to be doing all right. Yeah, no, like, personally speaking, here it's an intense experience, so I was just, like, thrilled to get on for the ride. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how big's your guys' crew? So how, how many people do you have performing? How many people do you have, you know, doing the uh, production side? So we have six people performing. There's myself, Nick, Devin Mitchell, previously mentioned, Emily, um, <laughs> Julie, <laughs> And, and Maya, and Maya. Maya Rosencrantz. Maya Rosencrantz. Uh, Emily Russell. There's someone named Guildenstern in the cast role. Yeah, uh, we were looking. I wish. Yeah. I wish. <laughs> <laughs> then then it would have to be Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, and that would be a different we play. We pretty yeah. much have to do that. Yeah. yeah. yeah, just, yeah. Uh, it would be unavoidable. Exactly. Yeah, there you go. Uh, there's four producers. They were all in the show last year. Mm. So their second years and one third year, respectively. Um, and one director and one stage manager, the incredible Jolie Fung. And, of course, we have uh, makeup artists, hair, uh, volunteers, and a bunch of other people that have helped us oh, get yeah. us off the ground. Claire Chu doing tech. <laughs> yeah. Now, so you guys are first-year medical students? Yeah. Yeah. So the, you, you guys aren't in uh, into the specialist workload yet, I think. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> no we're, we're very much generalists. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and for this, like, uh, is, it, is this generally, would you say, a first-year tradition, or is it just more like whoever can show up uh, – Whoever can make the time. Fair question. It's it's whoever can make the time, which is why it's usually a first year tradition. Mm-hmm. If you're a second year and you feel capable, like one did last year, you can for sure audition. But it's usually first years who have time. Mm-hmm. Our producers are all second years this year, but mm-hmm. um, or no, there's one third year. It's hard to find time in third and fourth year for this. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. And for the both of you, did you have any background in theater at all before this? 
Me? Okay. Um, so I did high school plays. <laughs> I was audience member number four in grade nine. It was fantastic. And I was <laughs> the doom merchant in this play called Little Box of Oblivion. So I, I loved that acting. Sounds awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. I got to wear black lipstick and be goth and angry and doomful. But oh, cool. yeah, <laughs> but not in university. So it's really nice to get back to that. Mm. I can imagine it's a lot of fun. I played um, trumpet in musicals in high school. Had a little bit of acting, but not really much. And they don't they don't expect us to come in as uh, as experts. Yeah, thank goodness. Yeah. What do you think were some of the biggest challenges trying to put on the show? <sighs> Okay, well, I can start. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm thinking. Sure. So, uh, the thing with Boeing, Boeing is something our director always tells us. He is like an actual professional, this mm. dude called Jake Foy. But he's always like, try to find the truth in your scene, try to find the truth in the play, and then everything becomes motivated and meaningful because of that. And so, this play was written in a bit of a different time in the 60s where <laughs> people had kind of different attitudes. So, mm. to still try to find the comedy that still rings true after all these decades, I think was a challenge for all of us. And this being written in the 60s, like were there conversely moments where you're like, oh, this has not aged well? Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, like like the, the premise is really interesting though. It's sort of like a Faulty Towers plot. I love Faulty Towers, yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, there is no Basil Faulty. Uh, actually, okay, so if you do watch Faulty Towers, Basil Faulty in this play is like the maid played by me. And Manuel, who is the butler in Faulty Towers, who's like the goofball, is actually like the main characters. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, that, yeah that, that sounds pretty awesome. Yeah. And uh, is sort of, um, he's sort of like uh, bumbling through it. Like he just has four fiancés. like, oh, three yeah. fiancés. Oh, what yeah, am yeah. I going to do? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's got this elaborate plan that's supposed <laughs> to be worked out to mathematical perfection. And as soon as a crack appears in the facade, the whole thing just comes tumbling apart. Yeah. It's pretty funny. Uh, don't, don't you hate it when, you know, mathematics interfere with your polygamy? It's just, you know, yeah. Yeah. astoundingly unsettling. Mm. So for yourself, Nick, what were some of the challenges? <laughs> uh, like Soma said, um, it, uh, there's uh, a, a lot of uh, difficulty of theater, I think, is adapting yourself to a situation. So it's not totally phony. And some situations are more difficult to adapt to than others. And frankly, it is a lot of time. It's a lot of fun, but it's a lot of time. And, um, yeah, it's tough uh, balancing this out with schoolwork. And you guys said that tomorrow is your first opening night, right? Correct. Yeah. Are you guys getting jitters? Like, are you, are you having any sense of stage fright? Yeah, I've had palpitations for like the past week. My sympathetic nervous system is a little. <laughs> <laughs> which was would, which would be more stressful, like this or surgery? Like, I'm just. I hope it's surgery. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> if it's not surgery, maybe we have some priority issues. Yeah. <laughs> And that's, I, I imagine that that's a question. You guys gotta get a lot. I'm sorry about no, that. No, <laughs> first time for me. Really? Okay. Yeah. And are you looking? Are are you? How's the ticket sales been going? Are you guys looking for a packed opening night? Uh, the sales have been quite brisk. Uh, there may be one or two uh, tickets left available for any inter- interested listeners. Um, Call in right now, one three zero six triple two three two five to get one <laughs> remaining ticket. I, I have a ticket unsold, so if, if you're listening, that's actually my phone number. You can text me. <laughs> um, if uh, if that ticket goes, uh, you can email producers at medplay at ubc at gmail dot com. So that's medplay atubc at gmail.com and see if there's any tickets left. Uh, the show nights are February 2, 3, 4, 9, 10, and 11. And doors at 7, show at 8. Excellent. And it's 15 bucks proceeds to charity. 
And there'll be alcohol. Yes, lots of alcohol. <laughs> Fantastic. So other than the actual performance, um, is there like an after, like a Q&A afterwards with the, with the cast? Is, is, or is it just the main event? It's just the main event. That's mm. that's a cool idea, though. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anyone wants to stay that long is the main thing. <laughs> um, our play runtime is about an hour and a half. Mm. Um, and opening night is on Thursday. And a lot of the classmate will, or audience will be our classmates. And we all have class at 8 a.m. So, <laughs> yeah. Perfect. And any last yeah, words about um, getting people out to come support you guys? Well, why not? You don't have that much li- that much live entertainment, and uh, you'd spend more money seeing the latest Marvel atrocity at uh, at a uh, Cineplex. So uh, Doctor Strange was that bad. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, uh, why not have some live entertainment? Uh, bring a family member, bring a friend, bring a date, and uh, enjoy yourself. I it's think gonna it's going to be, be a great awesome. time. It's just going to be so funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're we're marvelous. We're amazing. Yeah, Marvel should pay us. <laughs> now. I got an idea to run by you when we're done break, but uh, so the show runs at the. Uh, this is the uh, Medical Student and Alumni Center near VGH at Twelfth and Heather. Excellent. So, if you get too excited during the show, you can go just right next door. <laughs> yeah, or or we all know how to do first aid. Maybe. Oh yeah, we're 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 totally <laughs> totally qualified. We're no. extremely qualified. <laughs> So a hilarious night and no harm, no foul, because there's very, very well-equipped people in the cast themselves. Um, So thank you guys so much for uh, telling us more about MedPlay. Um, The Arts Report now is going to be taking a quick break. But after the break, we've got Jake Clark uh, to be doing a review of As I Lay Dying. So stay tuned. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Tune in to African Rhythms every Friday from 7.30 to 9 o'clock with your host, David Love Jones, as he plays a heavyweight selection of classics from the past, present, and future. This includes jazz, soul, hip-hop, Afro-Latin, funk, and eclectic Brazilian rhythms. Lots of people, they take it like a game. Tune into Post Rock Friday from 10 to 11 with your host John P for the best in post rock, drone, ambient, experimental, and noise. So yes, that was a very short break. Um, and as promised, we are going to be doing a review of As I, Day, As I Lay Dying by Jake Clark himself. Uh, but right before that, there is um, a short promo interview that I'd, I'd like to do uh, to kind of promote two things. So first is uh, Ada Ava. It is a production by Manuel Cinema that combines elements of shadow puppetry, multimedia, and live ensemble music. It tells the story of the elderly Ava and the ghost of her cherished twin sister, Ava, who comes back to haunt her. I'm in a play just like that. <laughs> so the Arts Report actually got to speak with director Drew Durr about the production and its upcoming show at the Chan Center. Um, and I'm going to be cl- playing a quick 
preview of it. We're not going to be playing the full thing. Uh, and if you'd like to hear the full interview, um, please do go to our Mixcloud account. Um, our Mixcloud account is www.mixcloud.com slash artsreport underscore CITR. So it is available for you to listen to there. Um, so take a listen and we'll be right back. And brings... Ada Ava is a show that combines shadow puppetry, multimedia, and live ensemble music to tell the story of two twin sisters and their undying bond to each other. Created by a Chicago-based theater company known as Manual Cinema, Ada Ava will be showing at the Chan Center's Telus Studio Theater on February the 7th at 7.30 p.m. The Arts Report got to speak with the director of Ada Ava, Drew Durr. My name is Drew Durr. I'm one of the co-artistic directors of Manual Cinema, and I'm the director of Ada Ava. So can you give us a brief overview of what Ada Ava is all about? Ada Ava is a cinematic shadow puppet show told entirely without dialogue, uh, but with projections and music. And it's about two elderly twin sisters who live together in a lighthouse. And at the beginning of the show, one of them passes away, and the rest of the story is about this odyssey that the other twin goes on trying to cope with the loss of her sister. And what are some of the different aspects that inspired this story in particular? Yeah, uh, we wanted to do a show about mourning and melancholy and grief, sort of the grieving process that you go through when you lose someone who's close to you. But we also wanted to tell it in a new way, the genre that we sort of looked to was Hitchcock, who dealt with all sorts of psychological issues, but through the genre of um, thrillers or suspense or supernatural or the gothic. Ada Eva is a ghost story, but it's more than just a ghost story. It's also about all these emotional subjects that we wanted to talk about. Hmm, you say it's a ghost story. Are there supernatural aspects of the, of the show? There totally are, so I won't reveal too much, but midway through the show, uh, Ada, who's the twin that survives, visits a traveling carnival and goes into a mirror maze, and when she comes out of the mirror maze, she believes that she has found her sister in her own reflection and brings uh, her sister home with her out of the mirror maze. Now, you said that the show, it combines multimedia, music, and puppetry. And when I was looking at the press release for it, it specifically said shadow puppetry. So do you mind giving us an overview of, of what shadow puppetry is? Yeah, totally. So, you know, I think when most people think of shadow puppetry, they think of shadow puppet animals that you make with your hands or just like very simple fairy tale shadow puppets, or they may even think about Southeast Asian Balinese shadow puppets. But the kind of shadow puppetry we practice is what we call cinematic shadow puppetry. And to make it, we use uh, four old school overhead projectors, the same kind of projectors that you had in your classroom mm -hmm. in elementary school. We basically create shadow projections that mimic the cinema, that mimic whatever a movie camera can do. So we can create cuts or... Um, transitions or zooms or pans again anything that like uh, you'd expect to see in a film do with our overhead projectors and we use when all is said and done about 500 shadow puppets and slides over the course of any given show and it takes so many 
uh, Shadow Puppets to make the show because we're basically making a film shot by shot. It really is like seeing an animated film made live in front of your eyes. That seems like a lot of work. And given that you guys have uh, been touring this in New York and also in the Edinburgh Fringe and now coming to the Chan Center, what are some of the technical challenges that you've had in trying to recreate this piece in a whole bunch of different places? Well, luckily, because they're just shadow puppets, everything is pretty much made out of paper or transparency or foam. <laughs> so it, it, it packs down pretty flat, and we travel with everything on an airplane. That being said, once we need to recreate the show in a theater, wherever it is we're traveling to, there's a huge amount of organization and coordination just to keep all these 500 shadow puppets in the right place and readily available for the puppeteers when they need them in the show. And you yourself have a background in puppetry, correct? I do now, but um, <laughs> actually, so there are five of us in the company, and all of us come from pretty different backgrounds, none of which are in puppetry itself. Uh, some of us come from theater, some of us come from music, others come from visual art, and we all had an interest in puppetry. And that was part of the interview with the director, Drew Durr, um, about the upcoming production Ada Ava by Manual Cinema. And if you'd like to hear the full thing, uh, please do go to our Mixcloud. Um, for anybody who's just joining us, this is the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. And for what we're going to close off with is Jake Clark's review of As I Day as I lay dying. Um, and, and now there are actually two, uh, two special um, shout outs, I guess, two more shout outs uh, to do uh, right before that review. And uh, the first one is for the Push Festival, which is still ongoing. And they've been putting on some really amazing shows. One of which I'd like to highlight is by an Australian band called the Black Arm Band. This group, this is a group of artists that will be performing Dirt Song, which is a performance about celebrating the past and revolutionizing the future of Indigenous Australia. Uh, with percussions, the the didgeridoo and soulful vocals, the show is sure to be unforgettable. So you can find tickets for the show uh, happening this Saturday at the Queen Elizabeth Theatre at pushfestival.ca. Um, and I did promise one more shout out, but it's actually a shout out that we already did. So the interview that we had about Les Mozart Noir, we've got two tickets up for grabs. And one of the things that we'd really like to encourage all our listeners to do is to really connect with us outside of the show Wednesdays 5 to 6 um, on our social media accounts. So please go do find us on Instagram. Um, this the only way that you can snag these tickets uh, is by finding us on Instagram and uh, DMing us. Give us a direct message uh, just stating uh, one of the things that you're excited about for Black History Month. Um, our handle for Instagram is at artsreportcitr, all lowercase, no spaces, just at artsreportcitr. So we really look forward to receiving your messages um, and connecting with you on Instagram. Uh, so thank you uh, for listening to those two shout outs. And without further ado, Jake, can you please take it away? Certainly I can. Now, as I lay dying, you may be familiar with, if you are familiar with the name William Faulkner. And if so, eh, I, 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 I was going to say originally, sorry about that. 
I I am not as maybe observed the hugest fan of Faulkner. I get the place he has in literature, but uh, let's just say he's a little obtuse at times. Uh, he is, along with James Joyce, one of the pioneers of uh, stream of consciousness. Yeah, that's a good word for it. He's a stream of consciousness writer. And As I Lay Dying was one of his earlier works. It's probably the most accessible novel of his. It's not long. The copy I have is small, fits in your pocket, uh, and about 200 pages. And it's about the Bundren family in Mississippi, uh, whose, as you may imagine, somebody dies. Their mother, Addie. And the Bundrens have to get her to her family cemetery in Jefferson, which is a small bit away. But this is the 1920s South, and nothing happens easily. So... And they also have terrible luck. So sorted trials and tribulations happen, and it's just generally not... I wouldn't call it a feel-good work. Like, the thing about um, this show here, which is put on at the Gold Corp stage by the Smith Gilmore Company, which is a very accomplished theater company run by Dean Gilmore and Michelle Smith, who would have thought, is this really does do very good justice to the book. And in fact, I found it more enjoyable than the book because there are certain things about Faulkner that are just really, you know, interesting to think of because without William Faulkner, there is no Cormac McCarthy. This is a dusty, sweaty Southern story about why we are awful. Actually, that might be a bit harsh. That might be a little harsh on the grand scheme of things because there are some really legitimately awful people in this story. Like, there are some horrifying example of humanity but there's also a lot of well-intentioned people and the bad people outnumber are not necessarily even don't necessarily outnumber the good but the bad people are pretty bad and those bad people are ants and addy who are actually played by dean gilmore and michelle smith respectively uh and it's their children who bear the brunt of this and the i want to say the cast of this play right off the bat with possibly one exception, is spectacular. Like, they, uh, it's excellently acted. And everyone except Smith plays multiple parts. Uh, Gilmore, for example, plays Ants Bundren, as well as Mosley, who is a neighbor, the Reverend Whitfield, who is a uh, rather lascivious clergyman, and Quick, who is another neighbor, I believe. Julian Dezotti plays Darrell Bundren, as well as the uh, neighbor Samson. Nina Gilmore plays Dewey Dell Bundren, who is the uh, Bundren's only daughter, as well as Little John, who is a male neighbor, and Lula, who is uh, one of the neighbors, who is, uh, I think, I cannot recall exactly, uh, Armstead's wife? Uh, that's another thing. As there's a, there are a few characters in this. In the book, actually, it's almost impossible to remember the names. This helps a lot. It's like getting an audiobook of Ulysses. Um, Eli Ham, which is great, great name for an actor, uh, plays Cash Bundren, their neighbor Tull, uh, Gillespie, and McGowan. Benjamin Muir plays Jewel, who is uh, sort of this rebellious, angry son. And Dr. Peabody, and more on that later, because that was a really great moment when he was Peabody. And Daniel Roberts plays Vardaman Bundren, who is the youngest child, uh, as well as Armstead and Vernon. And Vardaman in the in the book is supposed to be about 10 years old. And uh, Mr. Roberts is is an adult man, but these, he does, he pitches his voice up very high and he does act the part. And the the play is really Brechtian in its structure. And I, I, I am fond of mentioning Brecht, as listeners of the show might remember. But the show, there is no real set, 
really to it. It's just mimed by the actors. Occasionally, they use a wooden board to represent the uh, the coffin, which they're just lugging around for a while. And uh, they use sacks and stuff to represent uh, a, a carriage. But they are the ones miming the movement. They're the ones uh, doing everything. Like, there's a scene where they're all in a river, and they're just swimming through air, and it's really excellent. Every person here had excellent control over their body. And uh, there's just very much an actor's show. Uh, just there are a series of scene-stealing performances after another, especially when people switched. And it was usually just with the help of a, uh, a hat and what appears to be the Smith Gilmore Company's signature, a large inflamed prosthetic nose, which for Peabody was actually the, the first time when this happened. And uh, for what it's worth, um, Benjamin Muir bears a striking resemblance to James Franco, who actually played Darl in uh, uh, a movie of As I Lay Dying, because of course he did. Um, And Peabody is described in the book as being a morbidly obese septuagenarian. So he switches from this brash, angry James Dean type of character into this bellowing old man who's got this, I can barely move, god damn it. You help me, help me tie a rope to that tree and pull me up this hill, my mules can't make it. Yeah, and he did that excellently. It was, it was, that was really enjoyable too. And the Brechtian thing is relevant, Brecht, Brecht, I, I never know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Ah, well, so it is, I, I'm in Italian, not German. Anyway, um, the Brechtian thing makes some elements of the book which are not in necessarily intentionally humorous, even if they, I think, might have been supposed to be, because it's so hard to distinguish them. It makes those elements very... Actually, does make them kind of tragicomic. Peabody, too, especially, um, is, is a good example of that, just this absurd caricature of, of humanity, which is, I think, the best way to view the book, because the book is a really glum reality, a really miserable and dirty vision of reality. And um, the the stream of consciousness, I think, helps make that readable. And it also helps illustrate the temperaments of the, the real human problems, because there are... These characters are all flawed people. Like, Vardaman is obviously a child. He's a very childish... Of course, like, the character's 11. But everyone else has these severe issues and this one driving goal, this desire. Like, uh, Jewel and Dewey Dell both do some really bad things, uh, but they are sympathetic because they seem human. And Cash and um, and Darl are more straightforward characters, but they just get beaten down. And then Ants, put it to you this way, by the end of the, the play and the book, Ants is a character you want to die horribly. Like, they just... The character, the actor, uh, Dean Gilmore, by the way, is a fine actor, and he did excellent work with this, but he did excellent work at showing just go from, like, a daughtery old guy to this just loathsome, hypocritical bastard. And that's um, that's really the, 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 the scale to which the book works, too. Now, there, are, there were some issues with that, and most of these do come with, uh, with accent, is um, uh, Roberts as Vardaman, I mentioned he, he has to play an 11-year-old, so he did pitch his voice up rather high. Uh, and that made it sound occasionally a bit more New York than Southern, uh, which uh, is, I think, a problem of, of the role, really. It just did sound at times more like that. And um, Michelle Smith, uh, I, I do not know if this is her natural accent or if uh, she was putting it on, but her there's a scene when Addie uh, speaks 
uh, there is a scene actually when the deceased Addie narrates in the book too. So this is uh, in character to the text, but uh, she speaks and she has a very thick French accent, which uh, normally like I wouldn't be too bothersome. But the others, especially um, especially those playing, um, especially uh, Desati and um, uh, Muir, put so much effort into their accents that it it takes you right it took you right out of the out of the play a little bit. That was. Uh, probably the only significant flaw in the present presentation of it it was quite excellent otherwise in that regard and the lighting and sound use i know that last show we had lighting experts in here and i saw this on that wednesday and i i guess i saw almost immediately this fantastic use of light and sound the actor's pantomime paints a rich set just just with their movements in the light and the sound to denote things coming on or off. It's just really, uh, really amazing. Uh, and there's a scene towards the end where, like, there are some, there's a, is a legitimately scary moment at the end of this, courtesy of Mr. Desati. Uh And if you see the play, you know what I mean, but he it's, he's kind of looks like the Joker a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, this is a good show. This is a very good show. It's on at the Gold Corp. I believe it's still running. And it is uh, in conjunction with the Push Festival. It runs until February 12th at the Gold Corp stage. And I, I would recommend this if you enjoy, like, if you've read the book, certainly see it. If you like a heavier piece of theater, yeah, do not go to this if you're looking for a light show. Because this show ends with this brutally absurd message like this is like uh, absurdity is uh, the absurd is a word that gets overused a lot but the show ends with this just message about the worst part of humanity like sort of this absurd thing that happens after a lot of what is objectively some pretty bad suffering and you kind of don't realize it because it's gradual but it builds and that is uh that's that's the power of it i believe so yes, it was a good show. Uh, recommend seeing it if if you like it. Like that's the thing, though. Again, like I said, if you don't like something like Cormac McCarthy, you're not gonna come out of this feeling good. Like I didn't come out of this feeling good, and I know what I was knew what I was dealing with, but I did come out of this feeling very impressed by the uh, the acting, by the performances entailed in it. And I believe that's all I can say about it. It's it was an excellent show, and we will be back next Wednesday with an assorted smorgasbord of audible treats and uh yeah that'll be all uh this is the arts report uh courtesy of myself jake clark reach out to us at uh through gmail facebook instagram yahoo grinder i don't know what what we have for social networking but yeah one, one of those um it's uh, lovely to have you listening and uh cheers